This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. This is an interesting story, and it takes us back to the beginning of lockdown in places where lockdown was a little more strict, perhaps, than it was here in Metro Vancouver, and how one person dealt with that. Joining me to tell that story is Rachel Neuer, an award-winning freelance journalist for Time magazine. Rachel, thank you so much for making some time for us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. You've written about this and really paint a picture back to the isolation and feelings of lost connections into the lockdown. And then what you did to try and break out of that or to deal with that. And it uh, perhaps is an unlikely solution or will will seem like that to some people. But tell us what you did. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you know, in brief, I did MDMA, which is the illegal drug also known as Molly or ecstasy. You know, it's a a couple of years after the pandemic, it's sort of hard to put ourselves back into that frame of mind during intense lockdown. I was here in Brooklyn. Um, You know, the streets were just eerily quiet. The only sound outside really was the sirens going by. Um, You know, we had no idea when this thing would end. No connection with other people except for our, um, it was my husband and I, our one buddy who was in our pod. Um, and, you know, several weeks into this, I really felt like I, I was sort of losing my mind. I was losing touch with who I was. I was losing purpose in my life. And um, my husband, Paul, and I, our friend Ty, came together and we said, you know, why don't we do some MDMA? <laughs> and I, I had done MDMA a few times recreationally, you know, at clubs, um, in warehouse raves, that kind of scene, but I'd never done it at home, uh, you know, just with two other people. So Ty put together this really killer disco playlist, and, um, you know, we I scheduled it for a Friday afternoon because who needs to go out at night or do this at night if you, you know, literally have nothing to do at all. Um, and for anyone who's done MDMA, you probably uh, – are familiar with the feeling of it coming on because you start to smile and, or at least that's the experience for me. So I felt myself smiling and I was, I really felt like I was smiling genuinely for the first time in those several weeks since this horrible pandemic began. Um, And at the same time, I had been struggling with, with these feelings of, you know, who am I, what am I doing? What's going on with my career? I'd been a science journalist for more than a decade. I'd written a book about illegal wildlife trade, so things like rhino and elephant poaching. But I, I realized in that moment in doing MDMA that I was feeling really burnt out with just writing about um, essentially animals dying and what's happening to our planet and our environment um, because of humanity. I was looking for a new professional challenge, and um, at one point I took a break during the dancing part of the, the evening, and I, I was sitting on the couch thinking, you know, what can I do with my life to just give it a little bit more meaning? And I realized I could write a book about MDMA. Um, and that book actually just came out two days ago. It's called I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. It's published by Bloomsbury. Um, it's really the whole story of MDMA. You can kind of think of MDMA as the protagonist. So history culture, politics, and um, especially science and mental health. And going back to that lesson from the pandemic, um, in addition to having this idea um, while I was on MDMA to write a book about MDMA, I just felt this really essential, vibrant sense of connection. Um, Connection with myself, connection with everybody else out there who was really suffering. And it was that, that 
unity. You know, we're in this together and we will get through this together. That really, um, you know, kind of changed my mind during the pandemic and got me out of this really awful funk I'd been in. So that's a really long story. There it is. It's amazing that it turned into the book and congratulations on that being published. You Uh, you wrote in the the article about this as well, that it was the turning point in your mental health. And and do you remember that moment? Was it while you were dancing or, or shortly after you'd taken it or was it later on that you realized that? I mean, it was through, I mean, MDMA lasts about, you know, five or six hours. So It was more just this great relief of having this shroud of anxiety and unknowing and um, just horror lifted and suddenly feeling so much lighter and feeling this sense of social connection with everybody and and deep, deep, deep empathy with everyone around the world who was going through a similar thing and especially with people who had suffered at the hands of this pandemic, who had even lost loved ones. Um, And so... There was the acute sense of uh, connection and gratitude for just, you know, being alive in this moment while I was on the MDMA. But as lots of people who do MDMA therapeutically or recreationally report, it's really the lessons you take from the experience on the drug that gives it its value. So, you know, after coming down, long after the drug had uh, left my system, I could reflect back on that feeling as sort of a touchstone to, to ground me, you know, when I started to feel like I'm spinning out of control or, you know, sinking into a depressive funk again, I could be like, okay, let me put my mind frame back into that, that MDMA glow and, you know, apply those lessons to this moment again. Right. And, and that was my takeaway after reading your article about this as well, in that it's not just saying, hey, take these drugs and you'll feel mm-hmm. better. It then goes into how, how we've really changed thinking about this drug and the fact that it is being looked at to, for treating post-traumatic stress disorder and, and other illnesses or other ailments as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think people today think of still think of MDMA in sort of two different senses. Either they think of that 1990s early aughts propaganda of you know ecstasy this evil drug that's eating holes in people's brains and you know going to destroy our children versus um, sort of the media hype today of MDMA as this so-called miracle cure for PTSD and other mental health maladies and um, that's what my book I Feel Love really gets into it's 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 a realistic look at MDMA and what we can expect of it so yes there is extremely promising science and data coming out showing that. MDMA, when paired with therapy, can be an effective way to address address trauma in people with severe PTSD, at least some people. Um, But, you know, it's it's not going to make all your problems just magically go away. And there are other scientific studies now looking at MDMA for social anxiety in autistic adults, for example, for depression, for eating disorders, um, for a whole range of things. Did you keep taking it after that night or was that kind of the (laughs) launching point for you? Um, so the interesting thing about MDMA is it's, uh, it doesn't affect your dopamine system or um, your, and it's not an opiate. So it actually isn't physically addicting. So you're not going to really develop a physical addiction to MDMA. Um, some people do develop a habit. You know, they, they just party too much. They get into the raver scene. They're going out every weekend. But that's more of a socially driven thing. Um, as far as me, I set a rule for myself, which is I do MDMA once every three or four months, just as sort of a little vacation from the ordinary uh, like humdrum life and a way to get back in touch with my feelings and feel that sense of oneness with myself, with other people and with the planet at large. 
All right. Well, the article was a very interesting read and uh, I can't wait to look at the book closer. Rachel, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you heard of the Quiverful movement? You might be familiar with it if you ever watched the show 19 Kids and Counting, that show about the Dugar family that aired back in 2008 to about 2015. But it is getting more attention right now because of a new docu-series. And joining us to talk more about this is Catherine Joyce, investigative reporter, also author of Quiverful Inside the Christian Patriarchy Movement. Catherine, thank you you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is getting a lot of attention given the docu-series uh, that is currently streaming about uh, the Dugar family, uh, Shiny Happy People. I'm curious what your thoughts are given what you have investigated and looked at and now with this four-part docu-series uh, getting so much attention. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's fantastic that uh, attention is, is being paid to these issues. Uh, my book, Quiverful, came out rather a long time ago now, back in, in 2009. Um, and at the, the time, um, you know, I think that this was still very much uh, a pretty underground phenomenon. Um, there, you know, was the, the Duggar TV show. That was not something I focused on a lot because, in truth, a lot of people who follow this lifestyle uh, don't benefit from that level of kind of financial support and fame. Um, they are living out these sorts of really high commitment lifestyles um, in, you know, with, with far lesser means. And I think I focused a lot on, on how that impacted, uh, you know, people, particularly the, uh, the mothers and the daughters within the movement um, without that sort of kind of financial and fame buffer. Right. And it's an interesting point because you're right. We tend to see if people watched the TV show, if people are watching the docuseries and seeing that glimpse into this lifestyle, not, uh, like you said, kind of representative of what it is. Can you take us back a little bit and talk about Quiverful, what that means and a bit more about what you uncovered when you wrote that book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Quiverful uh, was is very much a niche movement, um, a subculture within uh, fundamentalist Christian communities. And I'm, I'm using the term fundamentalist not in a pejorative way, but just to distinguish, you know, th- this is different from a more mainstream evangelicalism. Um, it was a movement that at its most basic uh, emphasized the need for families, particularly for women, uh, to be open to having as many children as God gave them. Um, So in theory, that could be zero children. Um, In practice, the people who were really considered part of this movement and who were, you know, celebrated by it were mothers who would have eight or 10 or 12 children. Um, You know, almost uniformly, they they would be homeschooling families um, because they were extremely, extremely conservative Christians um, who, you know, believed that there was a need for an exodus for the school system. It's, it's funny that we are these days, at least in the U.S., starting to see, uh, you know, the, the mirroring of that sort of rhetoric on a much broader level. Um, but back in the 90s and the 2000s, when I was reporting on this, in the 2000s, that is, um, you know, that, that talk of an exodus, the need for an exodus from the public school system was was really something that you would find mostly on the homeschooling far right. Uh, they were also people who believed in uh, 
the reclamation of the term patriarchy, that patriarchy was the proper ordering of a family as, as God had ordered it. And they followed that um, to kind of different levels of, I guess, literalness. Um, you know, some families uh, took it to the extent that this would mean uh, women should not be allowed to drive cars. Uh, perhaps they shouldn't be allowed to vote uh, because that would potentially cancel out their husband's vote. Um, but, you know, all of this they saw, this, this kind of whole cloth lifestyle, they saw as a way of, you know, rejecting what they saw as the follies of feminism. Um, so they thought, you know, you can't have any part of feminism of gender equality uh, without having all of the things that the, the, the Christian right, um, you know, thought were sinful or wrong. Uh, so if you wanted to avoid uh, abortion and same-sex marriage, uh, you know, you would have to go back to what they saw as the root, which would be women working outside of the home, um, women having equal kind of political and civil and human rights as men. Certainly with the uh, instances of sexual abuse, uh, the, the things that came out both in uh, the Dugar show and this new docuseries, uh, do you go into that in your book as well? Or did that was that more uncovered or, or people learned more about some of the, the more sinister side of this? Yeah, I definitely go into some cases of abuse. And I mean, I think, you know, I think that what People who are ex- experts in, in sexual abuse or domestic violence or, you know, any kinds of kind of family violence uh, would say is that, you know, that sort of abuse can take place anywhere among people of kind of any politics or, or faith. Um, but what is something that can make abuse much more insidious is if you are within a culture or a community uh, that is very hierarchical, um, that is very insular, that has a big emphasis on, you know, you need to keep this secret in order to protect the family or protect the church or, you know, protect the reputation of this movement and and our faith. Um, and so again and again, I think in different Christian right communities, uh, we have seen this because you know, not not because it's conservative and not because it's Christian, but because they tend to be extremely hierarchical and they tend to be really insular. What do you think? How has this movement changed or is it, is it more popular? Or are people learning more about it? Or what are your thoughts on, on kind of where it is now? Uh, I, I don't think the movement is more popular necessarily, but I think so many of the ideas within it have just become mainstreamed within the broader Christian right and right itself. Um, so many of the ideas that were subtext within the kind of broader quiverful movement uh, when I was reporting on it, you know, ideas that, you know, there is a, a demographic uh, deficit that, you know, white people are not having enough babies, Christians are not having enough babies. That is now a full-blown part of pretty much mainstream right-wing thinking around the globe. Um, you know, arguments about why uh, abortion and contraception should be illegal are now what was once a really almost fringe-seeming, but I would say more of a vanguard of of the Christian right, has now kind of graduated to having this much more mainstream influence. We'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. 
example, so much talk about housing and pressure on different councils to approve more housing developments. So this next study shows a bit of an alarming trend that in some urban centres, not only are there not a lot of new housing starts, in some cases, the supply is actually decreasing. Steve Lafleur joins us now, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Steve, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. This is taking a look at the housing shortage in Canadian cities and some of the findings, one of them in particular, that when we do see new housing stock, it's it's in existing neighbourhoods, not using land that has been underdeveloped at this point. How significant is that, that it's not kind of expanding? Yeah, so what we try to do is there are three ways to kind of think about development. So you can have kind of greenfield development, i.e. undeveloped land where you build the subdivision. Um, you can have kind of a bit of intensification in existing neighborhoods, uh, like t- neighborhoods that are mostly single detached houses, or you can have a lot of high density, like condo towers, for instance. And what we found is for the most part, within cities, within existing city boundaries, uh, most of the growth is happening in a small number of pretty small uh, census tracts through high-density uh, towers. And I, I found it really interesting as well. Not a huge number, but this study also shows that there are some urban areas and areas where you might just think that it was growing and more housing was becoming available, but there's actually a decrease. Yeah, so some neighbourhoods, some of this can be complicated. For instance, we did find one example where uh, what what it was was that uh, tall buildings are being knocked down to build even taller buildings in downtown Toronto. But there are other areas, for instance, where you see things like, you know, uh, two two units, duplex or something getting knocked down and built into a single detached house. But uh, even if you look at, you know, you get up to the, the first 30 percentile of, of uh, census tracts, there's basically no growth combined with any of them. Um, whereas if you look at the top 5%, it's 50.9%. Um, So what we're doing is instead of intensifying across the board, we're largely intensifying in a few places that are already very dense. And you mentioned single-family homes. Is that happening a lot, though, as far as single-family homes uh, being built? Because it seems like it's going the other way, that we're seeing them, at least in Vancouver, places where building laneway homes or knocking them down and building a house with three units in it. But is it you're also seeing it going the other way in that single-family homes are still being built? Yeah, it's hard to parse the data because we don't have the exact specifics of it. Uh, So some of it we need to kind of fill in the gaps. Um, But I think the notable thing is that um, when you look at those census tracts, you can say, okay, you know, so sometimes what it is is uh, a couple of a a small building or something getting knocked in for a bigger building. But over the course of 2016 to 21, 5% of the census tracts in urban areas have lost 5% of population. So even if there's some anomalies here and there that explain that, the reality is that that's making no progress and, in fact, negative process. And the bottom 25% have all experienced some degree of shortage, whereas, or shrinkage, whereas we need to double housing starts in the country. Clearly, there's a, there's a mismatch between our priorities and our outcomes. Is it because of pushback as well in that in Vancouver we have the Broadway plan, which is an aggressive plan over several years to bring in tens of thousands of new housing units? A lot of that is towers where there are no towers right now in neighbourhoods and a lot of people don't like the idea of neighbourhoods changing. Do you think that part of this or this stall is because of pushback? 
Well, that's the challenge. Uh, when I lived in Vancouver, for instance, uh, in 2015, I, I recall uh, there were flyers all over the place on Broadway opposing uh, a condo tower that would have been across from the Sky, uh, SkyTrain station. I mean, I, I understand that a lot of people, you know, buy a house and they want the neighborhood to stay the same forever, but that's not realistic in big cities that are growing fast. Um, we're looking at immigration targets, 500,000, for instance. When you come to Canada from abroad, you're probably settling in GTA, Lower Mainland, maybe Montreal, maybe Calgary. There are only so many places where people can go. So we have two choices. We can try to fossilize our neighborhoods and let them be exactly the same as they are and let them get wildly unaffordable for the vast majority of the population, which is the train, the train we're on right now. Or we can build more housing, which means that some of these census tracts that have seen very little growth are going to have to bear some of the burden. It can't just all be in Burnaby. It can't just all be at Young and Eglinton in Toronto. It's got to be dispersed. Uh, we only have about a, a minute left. Do you see things changing, though? And certainly in BC, the new, not new, sorry, but the provincial government uh, under the, the current premier is pressuring councils to do this. Is that what is, that what is needed? Yeah, so they've, they've got targets for growth for a number of municipalities, which is a start. However, there need to be some concrete tools to ensure that it happens. If they're just saying, here's the target, we hope you meet it, that's not going to do much. In Ontario, we've made a lot of changes, for instance, and it sounded like the provincial government was going to take its targets seriously. However, now it seems that the, they're playing down expectations for actually meeting their target of doubling housing. So I think there needs to be some follow through. All right, Steve LaFleur, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining the show this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. But we are taking another look at a Supreme Court of Canada ruling. It was the dismissal of a defamation suit that had been filed by a former Chilliwack School Board trustee. You likely remember Barry Newfeld suing the former union president at the BCTF, Glenn Hansman, who uh, said his claim was that the trustee's comments were hateful. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what this ruling means. Joining us on the line is Dustin Clout, human rights lawyer and counsel to the the Community-Based Research Centre and the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Joe. We've talked a little bit about this case and how it made its way to the Supreme Court of Canada and this dismissal. What is significant to you about this particular case and how it unfolded? Well, there's a couple things that are significant. Um, One was that it was the first case to really recognize the social context that trans individuals face in Canada, the disparities that they face in terms of increased risk of violence, uh, poor mental health uh, rates, uh, you know, substance abuse, and then also a lack of access in housing, employment, and healthcare. There really hadn't been a case from the Supreme Court of Canada that went into that. But in terms of defamation, it was also quite consequential in that Folks can now feel more confident in speaking out against what they perceive to be hate speech, uh, against the LGBTQ2S plus community, or against other communities that suffer from hate speech. 
Right, because in this case, Glenn Hansman, who has been on this program many times uh, in his uh, former role as he was the president of the BC Teachers Federation, and he was very vocal against uh, Barry Newfeld. Uh, Barry Newfeld, Newfeld was opposed to the SOGI part of the curriculum. Uh, he called it transphobic. He called it bigoted. Uh, so what does it tell us then about being able to say things like that and not being uh, being uh, labeled as somebody who's, who's being hateful or promoting hate? hatred well i think what it says for folks throughout canada that potentially face defamation prior to this if they called someone out for behavior they perceive to be homophobic or transphobic or hateful they're likely to be able to avail of the um fair comment defense now there's been qualification if if someone is saying something that you think is offside in that regard you can feel more confident in your ability to call it out as transphobia, as homophobia, as hate speech. Uh, or if you're in British Columbia or Ontario, you now have the ability to go to court under our anti-slap strategic litigation against public participation legislation in those two provinces and shut down a defamation suit even earlier and potentially recover close to your full cost in defending that action. You might not have to go through with a whole defamation action like other provinces that don't have that legislation. Right. And do you think it might promote or, or prompt other provinces to bring in that similar type of legislation so it could protect, uh, sorry, prevent future, say, slap, uh, slap lawsuits uh, trying to kind of muzzle people? I, I certainly hope so. Anytime you have the nation's highest court vindicate this form of legislation and this was the second such case because ontario's legislation uh there were some cases that went up to the supreme court a few years ago about that when the court validates you know the application of this uh legislation it shows that you know there's a public importance to it and other provinces i think would do well to consider similar anti-slap uh provisions that would apply to citizens in their own jurisdiction and uh, does it also kind of bring forward, I mean, a lot of the, the finer points of this case, and I remember reading through the judgment, one of the reasons that that it was dismissed was uh, Barry Newfeld couldn't really prove that any of Glenn Hansman's comments were were negatively impacting him. He was still reelected to the school board. He didn't really suffer because of those comments. How do you think that plays into it as well, as far as uh, people looking at this and, and looking at it, uh, again, as to, to what type of comments would be deemed hateful or would be allowed? Well, I think it's it's notable. There's the particulars of what was said by Mr. Uh, Neufeld and whether or not that was characterized as, as hate speech. I, I just feel that it, it's going to give folks more confidence to call out stuff that's kind of common sense hate speech. A lot of the stuff that, if you look at the decision, what Mr. Neufeld was saying it seems quite obvious to folks that what he was saying was transphobic and homophobic. And as Mr. Um, Hansen has said, tiptoed into hate speech. And they, Mr. Hansen was also just noting that, you know, the BCTF had filed a complaint against uh, Mr. Neufeld and was talking about that as well. So it gives a, a, a little bit of an idea of what, if something is common sense or if there has been a previous case that has found hate speech when people have used similar words, folks can now feel more confident that they can 
use what the court called protective counter speech to weigh in on the public debates over these matters and to try to dissuade folks from saying that hateful speech or transphobic or homophobic speech. And how important is it, do you think, that this case did make it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada? Because if we look at how it went through the courts in in B.C., the appeal court actually disagreed. The appeal court in B.C. allowed that Mm -hmm. defamation suit to continue. It's it's very important, yeah. If if it didn't go to the Supreme Court of Canada, the B.C. Court of Appeals ruling would have stood, and we would have had less uh, generous access to the anti-slap provisions here in B.C., and there still would be that doubt on folks in a critical time. You know, we're, we're in a time, it's Pride Month, and it's important to, to highlight the developments that our community has, has had in the past. But we're also facing a rising uptick in hateful speech and hateful actions uh, against the 2S LGBTQI plus community. And if we didn't have this recent decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, it would have potentially had a chilling effect on folks' ability to speak out when they see hate speech online, when they see it in other realms in their life. And they would have been potential for defamation suits to be brought if you did call certain folks out. And now, you know, there's, there's greater certainty that a person can use that protective counter speech to, to challenge these uh, unfortunate incidents that we are seeing with more regularity here in Canada. Do you think, though, is there any possibility that this could also lead to uh, maybe somebody stating an opinion that's not hate speech, but maybe you don't agree with it? it wouldn't It's still not okay uh, to call them things like transphobic or, or such if that's not actually what they're doing? Well, it's hard to say, and then we we're really getting into like whether or not something is is defamatory or not like every person in canada has the freedom of expression and should feel confident that they have the ability to call someone out even if it isn't quite hate speech but it's something that's inappropriately said and that you know be ventilated in the court of, of public opinion when they speak it's only when someone takes it too far and undermines the reputation of a person in an unjust matter that defamation should step in and, and that should be uh, you know, circumstances should be rare when that's happening. When someone is debating uh, a matter in a, in a public forum and they say something that most folks find objectionable. All right. Well, it's uh, definitely, like you said, uh, a very important ruling from the highest court. Dustin Cloud, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's check back in with Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Chance. Good morning again to you. And good morning again to you. How is your morning going? Going well, going very, very well. I love that you're talking about this now as well because this was a big police presence on the downtown east side earlier this month. A lot of questions about that. We now know a little bit more about what is happening and a new gang perhaps that has shown up in that part of Metro Vancouver. Yeah, this uh, this was a headline in the Vancouver Sun yesterday that you might have seen, and it it caught me a little bit off guard. Violent Montreal street gang now selling drugs in Vancouver. So this gang, their name is Zone 43. They're notorious in that part of the country for violence and drug trade and all of that type of stuff. And uh, the Vancouver Police Department is alerting people that they're confirming that, yes, this gang is now 
operating in Vancouver. Now we're going to get to all the concerns and and things about uh, gangs in our in our in our province, and you know how to go about that, navigating that. But my first uh, reaction when I saw this was. This it almost feels like a business headline, you know. It's like a, like a corporate move, like they're opening up an office in Vancouver, and maybe it's just uh, uh, maybe maybe I'm too like um, I don't know what the word is ignorant to understand that gangs work like that, but I guess they do. And uh, sort of to help understand it, uh, I got in touch with Linda Annis. She's the CEO of Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers to ask her if like gangs actually, you know, they do. It does sort of seem like they operate like corporations. Well, gangs are very fluid and oftentimes, you know, they come from one city and they will move, you know, as the heat in one area grows around them, they'll go to other areas and sometimes they may have other associates here. I don't know specifically about this one, but it's very common for gangs to have affiliates across the country. Hmm. Okay, so does that mean that gangs are more sophisticated than than we know or, or understand? Gangs in Canada, and particularly in British Columbia, are very, very sophisticated. You know, they run it like a, well, it is a multi-million dollar business, and um, they are very strategic about what they're doing. And it's deeply concerning here. We have so many, you know, gangs, and as we get more uh, coming into the lower mainland area, it becomes a bit of a turf war, and it's deeply concerning about that. And I suppose that segues into, you know, the most important question is how will this or will it affect uh, public safety? Well, I think each and every one of us, if we see anything suspicious whatsoever, we need to call it into the police or call it into Crime Stoppers. The police can't be everywhere and we have to be very vigilant when we see unusual activities taking place. Maybe it's just a drug deal that you think, oh, well, it's just one deal. You it's incumbent on each and every one of us to call it in and let the police know because you don't know where it will lead to. That actually leads to a good point because there has been stories of gang activity in the lower mainland throughout the last number of years. And oftentimes you would hear this is a targeted shooting or this was a targeted attack. And sometimes people might speculate, oh, it's targeted. So it's not like this is um, violence that's directed at the general public, and they sort of treat it as less serious, which is definitely not the case, right? Well, it's very concerning because we, over the past few years, or several years for that matter, we've had shootings take place in very public places. I think of the airport, I think out some of the restaurants, fit, physical um, fitness uh places and you can be an innocent bystander and you know unfortunately because you are a gang member or an associate doesn't necessarily mean you're a good shooter and people that are innocent can be put at risk and it's very important if you see something suspicious around you know where you are to call it in immediately now do you know anything specifically about this uh gang they're called zone 43 do you know anything specifically about this one well, they're not very nice people. I'll say that for sure. They're based out of Montreal and they're heavily involved in drug dealing, murder, attempted murder. They, some of them have had firearms offenses. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, human toll as a result of this gang. Um, I really am very, very concerned about their violence. Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate uh, like a spike or do you anticipate there being like local gangs that push back on this or how, like, how do you see that happening or playing out? 
I think that's one of the part that troubles me the most is, you know, this is a new gang coming into onto existing turf of other gang members. And I just hope it doesn't get ugly and get bloody. Uh, so I would encourage anybody. And, you know, oftentimes people are afraid to report. You see something, you think, I don't want to be reporting on a gang member. I fear for my personal safety, my families, my friends. And really, that's where Crime Stoppers can come into uh, play. Because if you call us, you remain anonymous. It doesn't matter if the person is arrested, goes to jail, whatever happens. Nobody will ever know that it was you that called. Okay, so let's end it here. If people do see things or even you know anticipate that they're going to see something where can they go uh online or by phone and who can they reach out to or even maybe mention some resources where people could get some more information i sure will so first line um, to call is 911 if you're comfortable if you aren't comfortable and you want to remain anonymous call crime stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS or you can visit our website www.solvecrime.ca some people also have downloaded our app it's a p3 app that's readily available uh, at both the android and iphone um, uh, stores and it allows you immediate access to get a tip to us and I might add that um, we're open 24-7 and we do take tips in 115 different languages. And just even if you think something small, call us. We want to hear from you. Thank you so much and um, really appreciate the work that you do uh, in trying to keep us all safe. Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers Executive Director, Linda Annis. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So there you go. Some uh, helpful information about um, a potential uh, new gang. Well, a new gang that is confirmed to be operating here uh, in Vancouver and in the Lower Mainland. And uh, yeah, something just to be aware of to, to for us to sort of like watch over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, uh, Kim Bolin in the Vancouver Sun wrote about this and she's all over gang stories and knows what's going on. And uh, as you touched on too, People probably don't care which gang we're talking about or if it's a new gang, but are concerned about safety on the streets and uh, people getting caught in the crossfire. So good that it's out there and people know. Yeah, absolutely. There's a possibility that this could escalate some of that. So, yeah, just be aware. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure.